Welcome back to Project Growth. I'm your host, Ben Matano. And today's episode, we're joined by two guests, which is the first time I've had two guests on before, Avante Price and Eli Taylor Lemire, who are the co-founders of Posh. And Posh is a ticketing platform, and they're really looking to disrupt the entire industry and take companies like Eventbrite head on. We talked a lot about their entrepreneurial journey, and keep in mind, these guys are only 20 years old. Um, so it's super impressive in what they've done so far in their uh, super early stage in their careers. And we talked about how the ticketing space is in need for a change. We talked about how uh, the NFT space will actually influence the ticketing space and be a really, really big part in that. And today, these guys are seeing a lot of success so far with Posh. They've just raised over a million dollars in a, in a recent seed round. They already have 80,000 event goers through their platform, uh, 5 million in processed tickets in just a year. So there's a lot of upward momentum for these guys. I'm really excited to share their story with you. I'm also joined by Jay Claire, who is my good friend. I figured there was two guests on the show today, so I figured we'd have two co-hosts. Um, Jake also has some experience in the event space as well. So excited to dive into it, guys. Let's get it. All right, welcome back to Project Growth. I'm here with Jay Claire, who's co-hosted. Uh, it's probably the second episode now that he's co-hosted, but I'm here with uh, Avante Price and, and Eli Taylor Lemire, who are uh, part of Posh, who are super excited to chat with them. I came across their story um, actually on LinkedIn after they just raised some money. These guys are super young um, and I'm pretty excited to dive into their story. So uh, Avante and Eli, thanks for joining. Thanks for having us. Yeah, man. Um, so before we get into Posh and how that came about, I kind of want to dive into kind of the, the, the early days of Avante and Eli. I know both of you are kind of, uh, I would say, kind of hustlers, right? Um, getting into entrepreneurship pretty early. So Avante, if you want to like kick us off of how did you even get into entrepreneurship? When did you get interested in it? Of course. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, you know, the quintessential lemonade stand um, story started that off just from like, you know, you're a kid, you get what, five bucks a week allowance. You got to buy that $35 DS game. You don't want to wait seven weeks. So you go out and you uh, run a lemonade stand. And then I just kind of, you know, got obsessed with just kind of the self-ownership. I think that I was able to take of that. Uh, I didn't come from a lot of cash. So just kept doing that, hustling on random stuff, sold candy at school, all the, you know, random stuff that kids would do to make some cash. And then I kind of, you know, decided to legitimize. Uh, and then I had a project I worked on in high school, got a CTO for that. Uh, it's like a task rabbit knockoff that only hired high schoolers uh, that got some traction only like 20 K in funding by NYU ended up falling off because high schoolers churn after every four years. Um, but still got a bunch of, uh, you know, cool insight into that. And then uh, was able to eat, meet Eli and we've been working on that ever since. Yeah. And, and how did you, you mentioned uh, one of your, your projects at chore bug, um, which was essentially kind of connecting like high schoolers to kind of uh, gig jobs or kind of, handy jobs. <laughs> um, how did you kind of come up with the idea for that? Um, and how did you actually put like thought to action? Uh, I think it was really similar to the posh story, which obviously we'll get into, which is just um, like, it was as simple as I was just hustling, doing whatever I could to just, you know, make some cash. And it wasn't really about innovation and startups, even though I was really interested in that. I was never like technical in, in any sense. Um, and so I literally was just putting up flyers at Starbucks and like Panera Bread, the library, like, yo, uh, local high schoolers available for odd jobs. And I was doing it 
got so much demand that I had to throw together like a group chat of my friends just from like the wrestling team. Um, and then we were basically like, once I get a text, I'd send it in the chat. Whoever responded, I want it first, got it and did it. I'd received a payment um, and everything was just super cobbled together. Like it was literally a Squarespace site that I made. Uh, people were putting their credit card info, CVC, everything in literally a Squarespace form. Like I should probably delete that email. Uh, but there was a lot of like, just not privacy, like, yeah, just no privacy at all. Um, and it was very janky. But uh, I was able to kind of just build it from there, just from literally, you know, myself getting texted from a, a flyer to building a Squarespace MVP. We had like, you know, 40 grand in GMV uh, at a certain point. And then this kid uh, was like three years younger than me approached me to build out an actual uh, software product for it uh, to make it a little more scalable. Uh, came to college, tried scaling it and then ran into some, some churn basically just because the people who were ideal customers and users were juniors in high school. And then they have a lifetime of two years until they churn and wouldn't be high school anymore. So yeah. still scalability. And, and how did you know, like, you know, when I was in high school, I definitely, didn't, I still don't know how to properly build a website, but how did you know, like in high school, how to build like a Squarespace website? Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, Eli makes me feel like an idiot for not being a technical founder. So uh, that just sounds like, I feel like even a Squarespace site uh, sounds kind of easy. I don't even know how you couldn't build a Squarespace site these days. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I just, you know, looked it up, YouTube videos. YouTube and Google. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Eli, what about you from um, when you were younger? Did you have an interest in entrepreneurship um, or when did you really get into that? Yeah. So I was super into shooting music videos in high school, actually for rap artists. Uh, and I would take the train into New York city from the suburbs, like every weekend to shoot music videos. Uh, and then kind of in the later part of high school, realized that it was a pain to do freelance work just by myself and that there was really no way to scale quickly. Um, so I tried to do more of like a production company where I would outsource other photo video guys. And then around the same time, learned how to code and tried to do like an audit booking system. Then once I knew how to code, ended up working on this other ed tech startup I was doing in high school. So just a bunch of like random ideas. None of them really got crazy traction, but I learned a lot about like team management and, uh, just how to scale a website and stuff like that. Um, and so then when I got to NYU, it was a really good segue. I actually DM'd Avante before NYU and reached out because I was looking to shoot um, DM parties, which he was DJing a lot of at the time. And that's how we met. But yeah, mostly, mostly in high school, I was really focused on photo video and just learning how to code. And then it all like um, came together in college. And did you guys like grow up in similar areas? No, I'm from uh, Chicago, and Eli's from north side of New York. But they're they're actually really similar, like in the type of suburb that they are. Like our schools are actually really similar. I think. The power of the DM. Oh, we we're going to ask how you guys met. So we level Instagram <laughs> direct message. And I think that's how Ben got the setup, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Saw saw them on social and uh, and hit him up via email actually. I have no, uh, I'm a huge proponent of uh, social media. I feel like I've met everyone that is influential in my life through Instagram, like Twitter. I got to get my Twitter cloud up, but uh, if you're listening to this, follow me on Twitter because <laughs> I need some Twitter followers. <laughs> you do a lot of business through Instagram? Yeah, literally everything. Um, just literally any, like our sales team actually collects leads by going on uh, Eventbrite, finding the Instagram of the user and then DMing them on Instagram um and that is like 10 times more effective than any email marketing we've done wow 
That's yeah. amazing. That was one of the product, like the product features we really liked about Posh was kind of the Instagram connection you guys had. I'm sure you guys will talk, maybe talk a little bit about that and how that's going to hit with customers, but maybe kind of dive into the product itself. What is Posh? We'd love to hear for everyone that doesn't know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, so basically kind of just going off the story, uh, we started at Posh originally, not even as a ticketing platform or a startup. It was just a hospitality group. And that's kind of what I was referencing earlier when I said that I kind of got into chore bug by, you know, being the guy doing the ad jobs and we built a software for that. Uh, in the same sense, we were hosting our own events and then Eli shifted from photo video to creating the platform just for us to have our own. Like originally it was an idea of just like, how can we take Eventbrite? logos off the site and add like some of our own flair to our events um and you know if one of us is technical why why relieve it why not do that so he built it in-house we're just planning to be like a soho house kind of that was like a moving type of social club of you know college and young professionals in new york um fast forward three events we had a huge like 30 40 percent increase in ticket sales compared to eventbrite but COVID hit um so we had to stop the events realized that obviously you know also people do not want to switch products when they're at the highest of the high. Cause if you're making money, you don't care about other companies. You just, you're happy with Eventbrite. But now everyone was out of work. Um, they were looking for any way to make an extra dollar and anyone who was throwing a COVID party or anything and that's and that, they were looking for new solutions. So that was really helpful for us. We were able to take, you know, the 18 months of COVID where things were really shut down uh, just to do a lot of customer um, discovery, talk to people, understand what could be improved about these incumbent products. Um, and slowly build up our user base. Cause you know, also just to be so blunt, like Eventbrite and Ticketmaster couldn't necessarily advertise during the pandemic, um, but we're a startup. We're a little less worried about, you know, backlash. So we were able to do that and get a big user base during the pandemic. What would you say like the, the core kind of problem you guys are solving for, you know, thinking about traditional Eventbrite, where did you see like the opportunity for Posh? What's that, Eli? Uh, yeah, so like on a base level, um, something we had a big issue with was Eventbrite and the other existing platforms were putting their logo everywhere um, and we're very concerned with their own branding. And, and we still are concerned with our own branding, but we took a white label approach where we're instead empowering the curator to really get their branding out on the event pages and advertising. Um, so that was the simplest thing we worked on. And then from there, we really took an approach on automated marketing tools um, when Avante and I were doing events and our buddy Coulter, who was a big partner early on, um, be sitting there for hours on a weekend texting people to come out. Uh, and so the first thing we did was integrate a texting API called Twilio so that we could just send out really easily mass texts um, to all like previous attendees. And now we've built that out even more into like a complete attendee CRM that's integrated right into the platform. And uh, not only do a lot of the other ticketing platforms not have a CRM, a lot of them aren't even collecting phone number by default. Like Eventbrite doesn't even collect phone number. They don't collect Instagram username. Um, so it's just on a simple level, it's a huge data play because uh, we're getting a ton of data and then can use all that extra data that we're getting compared to the other platforms to make really powerful marketing tools. Um, but that's how we've differentiated ourselves in the start. And now we're moving more into high tech stuff like NFT ticketing and really advanced like permission systems to organize your hospitality groups, et cetera. Yeah. And I feel like we're that with this question, we're probably jumping ahead a lot, but this is something that I'm super interested in. So like, what's, what's the opportunity or can you just explain like the NFT and the ticketing, how those two kind of universes are merging? Yeah, for sure. Um, 
So the biggest thing for NFT ticketing that's really interesting is one of the things everyone fears about normal ticketing is scalping, right? Like if I am selling $20 tickets and they end up getting resold for 200, that's simply just annoying because I'm not making any additional profit when it gets resold for that much money. And so a traditional ticketing platform, you want to do anything you can to prevent scalping. The curator also wants to prevent scalping as much as possible. NFT ticketing completely flips that on its head because using NFTs, um, when people re-auction or resell NFTs, the platform can infinitely take fees off of that. So instead of trying to prevent scalping, we're switching into actually encouraging scalping and reselling where a curator could purposely release a, a low quantity of tickets at a very low price and let the attendees grab them up and resell them. Or um, you could even have NFTs for a curator and allow and a, like give the NFTs something like lifetime access to that curator's events. So perfect example, one of our largest users um, they're called Project 91. We love them to death. They have some of the coolest events in the city. In March, they were doing small, like 100 to 200 person parties. Um, so let's say they launched an NFT in March that was lifetime access to their events. Probably would have sold for like 40, 50 bucks. Last week, they did a party, sold out party at PhD with Afrojack on a Sunday. So that should give you a sense of like the level of the parties they're doing now. Imagine the value that NFT of lifetime access for free to their events would be going for now. It would probably be going for a thousand, two thousand dollars, and it would be like a really cool sub market where people could be trading NFTs for access to these things. Maybe NFTs end up getting you tables down the line. Tons of uh, potential, but yeah, the the I'd say A is changing it from eliminating scalping to encouraging reselling and auctions, and B is just. making really sick passes, like lifetime passes and stuff like that, that uh, could change how attendees are interacting with their their favorite creators. It also could be as well, like maybe like collectibles as well. So you think about like concert merch and stuff like that. Like, for example, I recently ran the New York City Marathon and I was the whole thing, time I was thinking, I was like, I have a medal, yeah, but it would be sick if I got like some sort of NFT that was like, you know, 2021 New York City Marathon. So is that kind of also a play as well? Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest thing cool. is just that, it kind of like it, it throws loyalty in a different direction because right now loyalty has no scarcity without NFTs, right? You do a loyalty program and anyone can be a part of it. But once you do a loyalty program that only your biggest fans can be a part of, the value of that goes up immensely because you feel like you're part of some type of club of exclusive people. Um, so just figuring out how to really elicit that feeling from our users is kind of the main focus uh, NFT wise. Yeah. yeah. What was your time then? My time, my time yeah. was uh, three hours and 54 minutes. My goal was just to go under four. So I was happy with it. Damn, that's good. That's nice. Yeah. My Have goal is to even do it. <laughs> so good stuff. <laughs> you guys should do it, man. Right. Yeah. Um, I think my first goal is a triathlon. Then we'll go marathon. <laughs> really? It's going backwards. Me, my problem is I can't yeah. swim or bike. Me and Jake were talking about this. So uh, I got a lot of uh, training to do on that front. Um. <laughs> But yeah, so, so it, NFT is super interesting. So I just wanted to go down that rabbit hole quickly. But just to kind of, uh, I guess, scale it back a little bit. Um, you guys have mentioned when you first started, it was basically around like throwing events. Um, Avante on your on your LinkedIn, it says you were DJing at the age of five, which is pretty crazy. So I guess talk a little bit more about when it initially started for just like throwing events. Probably, you know, you guys are young, probably just trying to have a good time. And then when did it shift to say like, okay, this can actually be like an actual business that we can scale. And also how do we actually scale this thing? Yeah. 
Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I touched on it a bit before, but basically it was, it was like winter of 2019 uh, that we just started hosting events. The main reason why we started doing that was because uh, like Eli said, he was doing photo video. I was DJing pretty much every major club in New York city I've played at, uh, you know, whatever it is, Marquee, Lavo, Tau, uh, you name a venue, I've probably played there except for Brooklyn Mirage. So if you're listening to this from Brooklyn Mirage, I'd love a booking. But uh, regardless, uh, yeah, I was playing those. You get treated like shit or garbage. Sorry, I don't know if there's cussing on this, but you treated like garbage uh, as a DJ or any freelancer in nightlife. Same with Eli. And we just really wanted to stop being treated like garbage and promoting parties that our friends weren't interested in going, right? I was posting a flyer or a link to an event and texting my friends to go and they're like, yo, I'd love to come support you, DJ, but the vibe of this venue or the vibe of this crowd that this promoter has is horrible and I don't want to come. And so we were tired of that and we knew that we were good at our own personal skill sets. And so we just started a hospitality group to host parties for our friends that they actually enjoyed. So we could actually like, you know, uh, show people the true, you know, expanse of our, you know, DJ and photo video skills. So we just did that, uh, got to host, like I'd say like 14 events, uh, come event like 10, Eli developed a platform in-house just so we could really, you know, uh, kind of and really put more of our branding on it. Uh, and then, like I said, two or three events into it, COVID hit. So we fully white labeled and we still do host events yeah. um, once a month. Now it's called Posh X. It's more of an industry and influencer event. Uh, we want to make sure not to compete with any of our users. We don't use any of their data. We're only, um, you know, targeting people who've come to our specific events before. Um, and the big thing is just there's no place for anyone in nightlife or tech or really any type of industry networking event that exists in New York or anywhere. Like there's not like a cool one. There might be like weird ones you see on Eventbrite that you would never go to in a million years. But what we do is we throw it at an actual nightclub, a cool venue. There's drinks. There is bottle service. There's a DJ that you know. But the point of the night is not just to have like fun. And it's also not just a network. It's kind of a combination of the both. Um, and we've gotten a lot of uh, really good feedback on that. So we've been doing that monthly um, and just kind of, you know, using that as well as merch, as well as content and just building a really cool brand that people actually enjoy uh, to really just, you know, build loyalty to the brand rather than, you know, Eventbrite. I'm sure you would never A, wear an Eventbrite shirt. B, you've never had fun on Eventbrite. C, you always ask your friend who sends you an Eventbrite link, can I pay at the door? Um, and so we're trying to kind of remove all those stigmas by building an actually cool, fun experience. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the Brooklyn Mirage. Jake was visiting New York uh, a few months ago, and we took him. We we took him all over when he was in town. And one of the places we were at was Brooklyn Mirage. First time for me that I've been, so it was uh, it was pretty. Next, awesome. time, next time we go, will be a posh event. Yeah, posh event. <laughs> um, I yeah. also gotta. We also gotta find out about that. Uh, that. That sounds like a really cool. The posh. You said posh X was like mostly, um, you know, kind of. Um, I don't want to say like business oriented, but kind of business oriented. Um, that's I'd say for young professionals. It's for people that yeah. aren't just there to drink. They're actually there to meet other people. Yeah, that's right. At my, my alley. I'm looking for something like that. So I'm going to check that out. Um, yep. One question I have for you is, um, so obviously you guys started kind of, you know, kind of recently with, with Posh, you know, about two years old. So what was like the big hurdles that you guys hit when starting this? Um, if it has to do with the pandemic, sure. Um, but like, what are those like main hurdles you guys hit when initially just getting this off the ground or maybe it was scaling? And how'd you guys kind of, how'd you guys move past that? So there's, yeah, go ahead. I, I would say one thing that's really difficult is uh, when you have no experience building a large platform, you're like constantly looking forward to when you finally get some growth and traction and users on it. And then when you do, you realize that you're wildly unprepared, especially if you're like me and not coming from a CS background. 
Um, so scalability on the tech side is really difficult. And the MVP I had built out was just not built to, to handle like any of the users we were getting by April, May-ish. Um, and so we had to do a huge migration over to a, a totally different tech stack um, and onboard a bunch of engineers as quickly as possible. Uh, so that's just one area we were like, I don't want to say unprepared, but more just there's so much you have to learn in a very short amount of time. And it's really fun. Like it's honestly been the most fun like period of learning anything probably in my life because it's so satisfying when you do build scalable technology. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a difficult, it's a really difficult thing to do. Yeah. I would say on the business side, um, it's more about like, like there's two main issues, right? It's a reliability, which comes with, you know, tech plays into, but it's also just like, you know, as the brand builds, as these promoters see their competitors using it, it's easier and easier to close them. Um, and people are very, very uh, reluctant to try new products that they might, may or may not trust, even if they see, literally they'll sit on a 30 minute Zoom demo, see the product is much better. And their question that will make them not, you know, use us is like, well, who do I know that's using it? And so it's really hard to just build that kind of uh, trust. And the second thing uh, is kind of just, I won't get into this too long because I could talk to you for hours about why this is the worst part of the ticketing industry, but basically how the whole industry works and why we're going to kill all of our the other incumbents and all of our competitors is because how it works is all these companies raise a lot of money and actually throw money at the biggest uh, users to use them. So Brooklyn Mirage, great example, we'll stay on that one. I'm not going to say what, how much they got, but they got seven figures from another competitor for a 12 month contract um, just to use them exclusively. Right. And that's something we just raised a $1.1 million round. We're not going to pay seven figures for one user. doesn't make any sense, but also on their end, it's not scalable to keep throwing money at these users every 12 months because 12 months passes and they're going to have their hand right out. And you probably burned some of your last round. It's not like it's strictly just coming right back in. You can just give it right back to them. Um, so you're going to have to get in this perpetual state of raising more money. And while all that's happening, you're getting all these users. Great, great, great. Cool. Brooklyn Mirage uses you. No one's satisfied with the product and no time or effort is being put into the product itself. And so I'll talk to, I, I talked to someone at Brooklyn Mirage and they said, I'm not satisfied with this product, but who's going to turn down a seven figure contract. Um, and it's kind of the same with all these things. So it's, it gets to the point where it's like the sales process gets near the end and it's like, you know what, this product is 10 times better than whatever I'm using right now, but they just offered me X amount of money. And unless you can match that, um, I can't use you. And there's situations where we can match that, right? Not everyone's getting a seven figure deal. Not everyone's Brooklyn Mirage. Sometimes it's 10 grand, 50 grand. We can afford to do that, but I literally tell them no, because I'd rather put that 50 grand into an engineer's salary. That's going to make their product experience way better. And the product experience of the millions of other users who are going to come better in the future, right? So we're building for scale, like Eli said, from a tech perspective, but also just from a business perspective, um, rather than just throwing money at all these users. And it has, you know, stunted growth for sure at the beginning. Um, I could come out here and raise three rounds in the next two months, like, and, you know, all these people are doing, Keith Rebois is raising, you know, three rounds in a year, $75 million, great. But like that wouldn't actually, at the end of the day, it would just give us a lot of fluff and not actually a good product. So we're being patient. That's a great little um, tidbit right there. And I kind of tease up where we were kind of wondering about how that funding kind of went down. You guys obviously just amounts to 1.5 mil and you just kind of said too, it's, it's not hard to raise. I mean, how did that deal go down? And I guess you guys are- oh, let, let me preface, let me yeah. preface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that took seven months to raise. As, as you know, first sure. time 20 year old founders, yeah. uh, 
we're not ex-Googlers, we're NYU dropouts. Like we're not like anything that, you know, is making these investors immediately like, be, oh, okay. But it's really just about them having to meet us and things. Um, and as soon as, you know, the first few people that got in the round met us and, and really understood the vision and got involved, it was really easy to close it up. But I'd say it took about six months to meet those people that were really influential for us. Um, and just to give you a background, like we had like 30% of the round closed over the first five months and the other 70% over the last like six weeks to two months. So it really took just like a few different influential people to really help us out. Um, but now I think, you know, once you're tapped into Silicon Valley and you just, you know, it's, I think we're at a kind of a point that a lot of founders get to where uh, it's a lot about luck, honestly, at the beginning, like you can work your ass off, but maybe you're in the wrong industry, wrong timing, there's wrong team, wrong so many things, right? But once you get like this funding and kind of the support we have, we have a 12 person team, like everyone's motivated and has their incentives down pat. It's just about like not screwing up. Um, so it's a lot of pressure, but it's also a lot of uh, weight off, off four shoulders as well. This, this was the first round you guys raised, correct? I raised a small friends and family, our pre-seed round of yeah. hundred grand back gotcha. last year. Uh, but yeah. So, so how do the, I guess, how do those conversations even like, come about are, are people like reaching out to you are you guys like reaching out to folks if so like how are you finding the vcs you want to reach out to how does that whole process work a yeah, lot, most, a lot. Of our, Go ahead. most of our round was angels um i think like avante said it was a lot of just digging around for the right people that could make strategic connections for us um and then in, in terms of the pre-seed round we just got lucky we had a friend who was looking to start investing and was super interested in the nightlife space he just bought a bar and a few other things um so he saw the potential and got in but yeah most of the seed round was angels and it was just getting in front of the right people um and it was it was mostly us reaching out there weren't a ton of inbound leads gotcha gotcha and and uh, is that process tough i've heard just from having these type of conversations i've heard mixed things about the whole like you know vc process or trying to get an investment process um, what was that experience like for you guys being, you know, two young founders? Uh, it's always different. You're going to get a different response from everyone because every industry and background of the founders, everything is different. I'd say for us, it was, again, just proving to them that we are the right people for the job. And the biggest thing is a lot of these investors don't understand ticketing or think that it's an antiquated space that's been around and been done, right? Because it's existed for 10, 15 years. But just like hotels existed for hundreds of years, uh, Airbnb came in and said, we're going to change this up. That's the kind of the same thing, right? It's like, um, yeah, this is the industry that's existed. But if you look at the actual innovation or if you actually understand the industry and look at, all right, how have these products changed in the last three to five years? They haven't. Um, and that's kind of what's lacking here. So that, that's the biggest thing is if we can prove that to investors, they, they were on board. Yeah, and I would add on to that too. I think one really big mistake we made the first few months is we were very numbers focused. And in earlier rounds, like that doesn't really do you any good, especially if like us, you don't have insanely great numbers. Like we had a good growth rate was nothing like alarmingly really, really good. Uh, and so later in the round, we started to take much more of a, a story focus. We had a really key angel investor that was like, yo, you guys, when you, when you go pitch, you need to focus way more on your story and that you actually were your customer and less on just, oh, this is the amount of much money we've done in tickets process or like these are some features we think we can build out um and i think the, like the parallels between djing and photo video and being an artist and telling compelling stories goes right into a company because at the end of the day all a startup is is a story um and so once we learned how to like really tell a compelling story during pitches i think they started going really differently 
Yeah, that's huge. Um, Jake and I are backgrounds in, in tech sales and, and obviously storytelling is, is huge for pitches. Um, coming up on time here, and I do want to be respectful of you guys' time, um, given that the you know, holidays are coming up and stuff like that. Fun question for you guys, or a less serious question. What's the go-to, I guess, nightlife in New York City? Uh, I'll let both of you guys kind of answer that one. Mm. Depends what you're looking for, yeah. But um, uh, hmm. if I'm looking for a fun night, uh, Little Sister Lounge. If I'm looking to rage out to some amazing tech no, or tech house, um, this place basement in Brooklyn. It's like, uh, if you know what Bergein is in Germany or in Berlin, uh, it's like uh, basically they say yes or no, and there's no way you know if you're getting in or not. <laughs> but if they say yes, it's the night of your life. <laughs> What's What do you mix in, Avanti? What's your uh, go-to when you're DJing? Like house uh, music like disco. or yeah, disco? Like disco house. Yeah, yeah. Eli, what about you? What's your What's your go-to in terms of the nightlife? Yeah, I, I would go with Avante. It's it's just like what vibe I'm trying to go for. But I really like, yeah, honestly, more underground tech house stuff in Brooklyn. It's always more fun when you really want to like focus on the music and have a good time. Um, but I'm down for the the club action in Manhattan too. So whatever the vibe is. Gotcha. And Avante, I know you're from Chicago. So what do you think? Is Chicago, New York pizza? Where, where do you stand on that? <laughs> Definitely New York. I, I'm New York on everything. I, I'm not even looking forward to going home for Thanksgiving. But uh, <laughs> oh yeah, we're both also like we're just waiting to turn 21 so we can properly go to Vegas, and then I think we'll get like we'll also just unlock new clubs in the city that we can go to. So that'll change a lot too. You guys are crazy young. I didn't mention this on the on the podcast, but I just want to say you guys are 20 years old, and yeah, I feel like you know I feel like I'm speaking to. I've had a lot of different founders on the podcast. And you guys are like super mature for your age and uh, you definitely should be proud of, of where you guys are at uh, 20 years old and you guys are doing so much. So hats off to you guys. I've been 21 since I was 16. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think we all have a little bit, um, mm -hmm. but awesome guys. I, I appreciate both your time. Um, we're going to get this episode out in probably a few weeks and um, have a great Thanksgiving and uh, let's stay connected. Amazing. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, boys.